Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. This is your first time. Welcome. If you're a return listener, welcome back. As always, I'm excited to begin our discussion of Parshat Va'etchanan, and today I have a very special guest, Rabbi Leon Morris, who is the president of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. And yes, if you're thinking, oh my God, Svi, you're going to be talking to your boss today, that is true. I am, but I'm excited. I know he's got a lot of wonderful insights. He's a wonderful teacher. So without any further ado, welcome, Leon. Thank you so much, Svi. It's wonderful working alongside of you. And I'm a big fan of this newly rebranded podcast that you're hosting. And you're completely unbiased, which makes it even better. It's great to be here. Terrific. So let's jump in. What have you chosen for us to focus in on today? So I want to look at the first paragraph of Shema Yisrael that appears, of course, in Parashat Ve'etchanan. That sounds like you might be talking about tefillin today. That's exactly. That's this is exactly. not the Chabad podcast, everyone. This is Pardes, but we're still going to take a well, deep dive into You know into it's tefillin. Pardes when you have a reform rabbi talking about the centrality of tefillin. That is true. That's going to be a unique take. So tell us your understanding of what's happening here. So I think the first time that I saw tefillin was in my kindergarten Sunday school class. There was a small group of men who had just participated in a morning minion, and they passed through our classroom, which really was like a converted social hall, on their way, I think, to have breakfast. And the tefillin, I had never seen them before. They looked very funny to me, these strange black boxes and straps. And I remember thinking to myself that the shell roche, the head tefillin, looked a lot like a little tiny top hat that they were wearing too far forward on their heads. And they looked to me kind of like unicorns, these men walking around in tefillin. And I knew for a long time that I wanted to wear tefillin. Wait a minute, from that moment, it sounds like you described them looking bizarre and strange and otherworldly, and yet somewhere inside of you, this sense of, oh, I want to try that. It probably percolated. It was somewhere in my subconscious for a while. And, you know, I remember as a teenager, my first trip to Israel of being at the Israel Museum and in the Dead Sea Scrolls area, seeing a set of tefillin from the Dead Sea Scrolls time, I knew that this was a religious act consistently performed for generations, but was still rather unfamiliar to me. And while traditionally boys begin putting on tefillin at the age of 13, I only learned how to do it my junior year abroad at Hebrew University. And 
I started putting on tefillin every day from the time I was 21, and I've never missed a single day in my life of putting them on since. It's been a very powerful- That is quite a streak. I mean, of course, you're only in your 30s, but that's still- uh, (laughs) 54 years old. Very impressive uh, streak. So it's interesting because what you're describing, I think, is the phenomena that I used to grow up on the edge. I went to a day school and an Orthodox high school, so they were required and more familiar. But in the wider milieu, at least of the conservative synagogue I grew up in, most people did not put tefillin on on a regular basis. They may have owned them, but they definitely only wore them when they came to synagogue. Right. You kept them in your Jewish drawer. Right. right? And the feeling is, I feel like because Chabad burst on the scene, they became a lot more identifiable as this really important thing that Jews get to do. But you're right, they have this both exotic character to them, that they are strange and different, but because of that, they are so uniquely Jewish. And I think in many ways it speaks to the binding nature of religious life. Pun intended. Pun very much intended. Religion is derived from the Latin word meaning to bind or to tie, ligar. And the need for tefillin to remind me that a viable, compelling religious life isn't just about making us feel good. It has to have elements that are binding, elements that carry with it a sense of obligation or of duty, that it entails responsibilities. I wrote a piece recently for this journal, Sources, in which I'm not connecting it at all with tefillin, although the graphic designer ended up putting a picture of somebody wearing tefillin on it, also explored this issue of what I find missing, particularly in liberal Judaism. I was going to say, you know, it's unusual... I would say that someone coming, at least educationally, from a liberal Jewish background to speak in this language of obligation and musts and oughts. You know, I grew up that that was the orthodox language of how we look at Judaism, and liberal Judaism focused on autonomy and choice and personal connection and meaning. But I hear you're moving in a different direction. So maybe walk us through your understanding of tefillin, and I would love to pursue this with you. Uh, Your, I'm going to argue, unique place in both of these worlds of liberal and, you know, mitzvot-centered Judaism? Well, I think many contemporary Jews outside of orthodoxy are thinking about this notion of what it means to feel a sense of ought, to feel a sense of duty. We're used to that language in a lot of other contexts. We're used to that language in terms of marriage. We're used to that language in terms of our responsibility as parents. Social justice is filled with that language of also, the responsibilities that we have in modern life and also, in modern economies yeah, and so on. But that's true. And I want to return to this idea of the sense of duty and obligation that emerges from relationship. And it's interesting that when we wrap the ritzuah, the strap around our finger, we recite these words from the prophet Hosea. I betroth you to me forever. I betroth you to me in justice and righteousness and loving kindness and compassion. I betroth you to me in faithfulness. 
and I shall know God. And knowing, you know, of course, has a resonance also of intimacy. So let me just understand if I see where you're going. For you, Tefillin, it's not just simply this action. I don't want to use the word mindless, but this almost strange action whose power is located either in a mystical world I can't connect with, or just because I'm doing it precisely because I don't understand it gives us its power. You want to suggest somehow that this is very much a symbol of building relationship. And that relationship is, at least through the imagination of Chazal, of the rabbis, is a mutual one. This beautiful Agadah in Masechet Brachot, which asks the question of what's in God's tefillin. So given that we wear tefillin with God's name on it, the rabbis want to know what's written in God's tefillin. There's just kind of an assumption that, of course, God would wear tefillin as well. The rationally inclined, of course, are now very, very nervous at well, this idea. Well, you know, but please hear this as a metaphor, perhaps. Metaphor, imagination, and poetry. And it's all about the ways in which our life is intertwined in God's life. So what's the punchline? What is oh, God okay. So Rabbi Nachman, the son of Rabbi Rabbi Isaac said to Rabbi Chia Bar Avin, what is written in the tefillin of the Ribono Shalolam, the master of the universe? And he replied to him, Mika Amcha Yisrael, Goyachad Ba'aretz, who is like your people Israel, a unique people in the earth. And here it's not just the idea that our tefillin says God is one and that we love God, right? The verse from the Etchanan, this week's parasha, and you shall love the Lord your God. It's also that God loves us because God says, who is like this people, Israel? But it's also this idea of uniqueness, that we say Hashem Echad, God is unique. God is one, not just in the sense that there is one God to the exclusion of many, but there is nothing that is comparable to God. And God is saying, Goy Echad Ba'aretz, a unique nation in the earth. So this is God's Shema, if you will. This if is our God's Shema. Shema I love is, that. We love God and we're commanded to love God, and God is one. God's tefillin, at least according to the rabbis, is saying towards us, the Jewish people are one, and by extension, I love you too. That love is not a one way street in Jewish theology. Our love isn't an unrequited love. Our love and our commitment is reflected back to us. So I love that idea. I'm moved by that idea. And in some ways, that's the idea that fosters this sense of ought and obligation. So I've had the experience, and I'm sure many listeners have as well, putting on tefillin in random places, gates of different airports around the world, situations where like the only opportunity if you're not going to miss a day is to take your tefillin out and put them on because it's easy to lose a day when you're traveling and in transit. And when the beginning of a day is marked by putting tefillin on, that such a loss of a day represents more than the burden and disorientation of travel. It's in that search for the empty gate at the airport for me to put my tefillin on you know, and putting aside my own self-consciousness is to affirm my commitment to this idea that I need to assert this act of love, this expression of love and of mutuality. So the tefillin for you, putting on those tefillin for you is much more than just simply fulfilling a commandment among the other 613. But it sounds like you're saying that it is very much a way to concretize 
this sense of mutual committed love that you have with God. And part of it also is in a uniquely Jewish way. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that's why I always feel terribly self-conscious putting Philin on in airports because in a certain way, I guess I'm aware, right? Other people pray, but to put on Tefillin, it's almost like I'm seeing myself through the eyes of these others yeah. and I'm feeling strange. And suddenly this normal thing feels very abnormal and weird, but maybe that's part of being in loving relationship is acting in ways out of commitment, even when it feels weird. Well, and this is part of Goy Echad Ba'aretz. This is part of our uniqueness. And part of our uniqueness is the physicality of the mitzvah system for Jews, that the physicality is what's affirming that the way we serve God is with our embodied selves, that religious life isn't just about abstract ideas, that we embrace the physical and the spiritual. But the physical for us, I want to argue, is the way that we give the spiritual a concrete way of expressing itself. Our minds are just one part of our bodies, and mitzvot are largely not about our thoughts, but about our actions. The mitzvah comes alive through our mouth, what we say, through our arms, through our legs, our ears, our eyes. I'll just return to our ears, right? The whole discussion of Shema Yisrael and the debate about what that means. I just studied this with you in Berlin. You did indeed. I'm not going to test you, though. Do we have to articulate loudly enough that our ears can hear us say the words Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad? Or does Shema mean we have to say it in a language that we understand? This is why we were studying it in Germany. And we're left, I think, in that sugya, in Brachot 15a, with both. That Shema is something about we're being called to hear and we're being called to understand, to comprehend. So I just want to jump in. I feel like you're saying something even that goes beyond that. And you'll correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth. Not only do we have to both engage body and mind or body and heart, but there is something in that engagement that deepens both of them. That when I embody my religious experience, I'm actually going to enhance my emotional intellectual connection to it. And when my emotional intellectual connection is not enhanced by a physical act, I'm also going to lose something on that end. It's too abstract. And there's something about the application of religious ideas to daily life that I think is helped along by the physicality of the mitzvah system. You know, I can't help but feel at this moment, maybe we're falling into the cliche of the Orthodox and liberal rabbi, where the Orthodox rabbi would say, you know, in my community, people are so wonderful at the details and the physical actions, but they become so habitual. The bigger ideas, maybe not so much. It's habit. You know, you can reach a point where you put filling on, you know, you'll forgive the comparison like you brush your teeth or eat breakfast, right? It's part of your routine, which has that consistency to it, but we're not thinking. And I feel like maybe you're suggesting to the non-Orthodox population out there, they are missing out on something by not having these concrete behaviors to express spiritual ideas or connection. 
What do you think? This diverse Jewish world that we occupy, we complement each other. And to borrow Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's phrase, we're all different, you know, letters in the scroll of the Jewish people. I just have to insert a funny anecdote. You know, anybody that has put on tefillin, men or women who have done this, it leaves marks on your arm for a while. It does. And it's a kind of footprint of having laid tefillin. And inadvertently, it becomes kind of a mark that you've prayed, kind of like the stickers you get after donating blood. So I remember when we lived in Sag Harbor, New York, walking with my, at that time, little son from the Memorial Day Parade in this little slice of Americana. And we ran into a non-Jewish friends of ours, and a friend noticed the lines on my forearm and asked, you know, is everything okay? I think he thought I got this strange rash that appears as stripes. Or that you were held hostage somewhere <laughs> right, and, and, and bound to a well. chair and now have been released. So I said, yeah, I most definitely am fine. Everything is okay. And then I tried to explain to him what these marks were. And then I made a reference to some of Chagall's paintings. And he was like, right, I've seen those. I've seen Tfilin in Chagall's paintings. So because the rabbis understood the command of the Shema, to bind them as a sign upon your hands and to put them as a symbol before your eyes. They understood it in a concrete way, in a physical way. They saw in the mitzvah of tefillin a way of standing by one's word. And so we have in Brachot 14b that Ula said, anyone who recites Shema without tefillin, it is as if he has given false testimony against himself. And Rabbi Chia Bar Abba goes on and says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan that it's like offering part of a sacrifice without following the whole recipe of what you're supposed to offer. And both of those are really interesting to me. And they're different, right? They kind of suggest different problems. They are. I like, even if Rashi tries to say that the phrasing ki'ilu here means that it's a nice way of saying it, because I guess the assumption is that Rashi is saying, no, actually, you probably are an aid sheker. You probably are a false witness. And Ula said, Ki'ilu, it's as if you're a false witness, just as a way of making it a little softer. Well, to be gentle with all those Jews out there of his time, perhaps, who were saying Shema, but without, without tefillin. tefillin. But there is something, if we just kind of back up a little bit, there's something about standing by your word. There's something about the conditioning of doing what you say you're going to do, the importance of words of being on record, of standing in witness of something. I think Ula's playing with this idea, you know, to the extent to which tefillin, apart from being a mitzvah, is about training us to be true to our word. And I want to really think through with you this second part, Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. He says, you know, it's like one offered a burnt offering without a meal offering or a peace offering without libations. I think what's being said here is like, you passed, but you have a C minus. You can do better. What's interesting there, I agree with you, because that's why I think the two are quite different. The second one seems like, yes, you did say Shema, and you get credit for saying Shema, but you left something out. You should have also done tefillin. And the first one seems harsher to me. 
The first one, it seems to be saying, if you're going to say those words without fulfilling the commandment embedded in the words you are saying, there's almost a hypocrisy here. There's an invalidation of what just happened. This is why I love it so much. In other words, if we abstract it a little bit from tefillin, this is what religious life always does in every religious tradition. The temptation for it to end up being just words that are spoken, words that are recited without standing by those words this is the dark side of religious life. So what you're saying is that somehow you're not even saying Shema, if you will, in the sense of it's like getting engaged without bringing the engagement ring, I guess, or without getting down on one knee or all the other cliches we can mention that without the You know the we're going to get letters by lots of people that proposed without engagement rings. I know, rings and I, I apologize to everyone for my insensitive example. But this sense that if you haven't embodied it, if you haven't demonstrated it, that you really haven't done it in some way. And at the beginning, I always understood that Gemara meaning you haven't fulfilled the verse that talks about binding the tefillin. But now I'm thinking it might be referencing the ahafta part. You have not really expressed your love. Expressed your love if only done it verbally without this action. Or without an action. You know, I want to just abstract it a little bit that, you know, don't tell me that you love me, show me that you love me. I want to play with one other piece which is the series of the way that we tie the tefillin and the knots, spell the word Shaddai, Shin Dalad Yud. This is one of God's names, usually translated as Almighty. There is a beautiful teaching that I find very meaningful from the Talmud that says Shaddai means Misha Amar Olam Dai, the one who can look at the world and say, it's enough, like Dayenu, die. Misha Amar Olamo, die. One who looks at his world and says, it's enough. What I have is enough, you know, die. My home is big enough, die, it's enough. My car is fine. My bank account is large enough. My children and who they have become is enough, and on and on and on. And I think this is particularly resonant for our time. What does it mean to engage in religious practice, a spiritual practice which reminds us that it's enough? Sha'amar la'olamo die, that we can look at our world and say it's enough and can foster in a sense of gratitude. I think it's really important what you're saying, and I'm linking it back to what you said before, because there are different ways of saying it's enough. There is the way of sort of accepting one's failures as failures and feeling bad about it, but giving up. You win, world. Enough in the sense of I'm done trying and I'm accepting in a very sad, miserable, bent over way, I'm accepting my fate. And there's another way of saying enough where the sense of it's enough because I'm filled up. I have enough to feel full, to feel grateful. And I feel like I need that lesson all the time. 90% of my thoughts go to what I don't have. I think we all do. You know, I'm thinking of that beautiful line from the tefillah in the fourth bracha of the Shabbat Amidah, Sabe'enu mituvecha. Help me on at least this day, one day out of seven, help me to feel like I'm full from your goodness. I'm all filled up. There's nothing that I need. And this seems to, this Gemara, 
of we should look at our world and say die, that that's the meaning of the word Shaddai, you know, that this is what we need to aspire to every day, not yeah. just Shabbat. And I think that's what really also makes room for love, right? When you're constantly wanting what you don't have, you're almost making everything contingent. Well, my happiness will only come when this happens. And of course, when that thing happens, then you immediately want the next thing. There's very little room for loving appreciation when you're constantly in a modality of not enough. And I'm thinking now about how we are with our friends and our spouses and our children. And I'm thinking to myself, how often do I project you're not enough? And whether the message that's heard is that the love is somehow missing. And in contrast, when I project this message of you're more than enough, it's such a blessing how much love is expressed in that moment. I was talking at the beginning about my first exposure to tefillin, and I just wanted to kind of come full circle. And my grandfather, my Papa Benny, had put on tefillin every day of his life from his bar mitzvah until his mid-20s. And when he was a medical resident in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, far from where he grew up in Camden, he once had to go to the hospital for an emergency. And it was the first morning in his weekday adult life that he didn't put on tefillin. And as soon as he saw that nothing terrible happened to him, he never put them on again. And when I was about the same age he was, when he stopped putting on tefillin, I started putting on tefillin in my 20s. And I began to see in tefillin, as we've talked, an important act of religious commitment and a symbolism of the mutuality of our relationship with God and of all the things that we talked about. So what for my grandfather, and I think for many in his generation, what seemed like a kind of a burden became a real privilege for me. What for him felt to be somewhat superstitious and somewhat perfunctory, the way that you alluded to earlier, for me was a freely chosen connection, a tie, if you will, with a tradition. We'll accept that pun here on this podcast. And it's a tradition that I wanted to feel more tied and more connected to. So, you know, for my grandfather, the ties that bound him to Jewish life were organic and natural and unquestioning and, you know, Yiddish speaking home and Jewish neighborhood. And for me, and I think for many of our generation, the ties to our Judaism are more self-constructed. They're largely the result of our freely chosen journeys and our own attempts to wrap ourselves in a tradition that we continue to Another discover. pun. Another pun. You know, and this is all about feeling bound. What's so interesting there is, in a way, then, you were given a gift by not having tefillin thrust upon you at the age of 12 and a half, like many people do the six months or a month before their bar mitzvah. But you were given an opportunity to choose. And I think in a certain way that reflects the optimistic side of Jews growing up with so much freedom is that the things that we do, we do freely. We choose them and because they're meaningful. And, you know, what you've given us today is really a wonderful example of how Jewish practices, which may on the surface look bizarre, I will use that word bizarre, can contain so much power and meaning 
if you allow yourself to look at them from a personal and perhaps different perspective. Thank you, Tzvi. I just want to close by saying that my oldest child is about to turn 15. His bar mitzvah parasha was ve'etchanan. And for his tefillin, I took him to Tzvat, where in a two-day workshop that was just phenomenal, he made his own set of tefillin. And in a way, I think, I just thought of this as we were sitting here. Maybe it's somewhere in between my grandfather and me in terms of the experience. It was sort of, if not thrust upon him, it was expected of him. And yet, he made his own. It has a DIY, a do-it-yourself kind of component. And with Rabbi Greenberg in Svat and his workshop, the tefillin that he wears are boxes he crafted, the straps are straps he painted, the four scrolls for the head and the one scroll for the arm he placed in himself and sewed them up. Very powerful. You know, to bring us back full circle, because it's a beautiful image you gave of trying to really combine the best of both worlds, of inherited tradition and obligation, but the power of choosing and creating for oneself. Like I sometimes think maybe that's the nature of Shema, that on the one hand, the words are given to us. Moshe articulated those words. On the other hand, we have to say them. We have to say them for ourselves. It's not enough that Moshe said them once or and even to, to hear them ourselves exactly. and understand them ourselves. And we have to express it for ourselves and to hear it for ourselves. So maybe this is a wonderful paradox of living with mitzvot in the sense of commandments that are expected of us and handed to us and being told this is what we must do by earlier generations, but carving out a space where at the same time, we get to experience what you experience as a 21-year-old, the empowering sense of choosing, of taking it on, of making it your own. So maybe that's the educational challenge and the religious challenge that we are uh, struggling with. And it's really beautifully embodied in everything that you said about your own journey with Tefillin and how you found the meaning in them. Thank you, Tzvi. So we can end there. Even though Tefillin is not necessarily a Shabbat-oriented uh, topic. No, probably listening to this podcast not on Shabbat That's well. true, very possible as well. So I want to really thank Leon for being here and sharing his beautiful insights and especially in such a profoundly personal way. I want to thank all of you who have listened. Please encourage other people to listen. We would love to expand our reach. And on that note, Shabbat Shalom, and we look forward to learning more Torah with you in the future. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.